All right, listen, let's find our sermon outline in our bulletins. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew 19, please. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. As you're finding your way there, just a little heads up that we are doing a little leapfrog in the Gospel of Matthew because we would have been in the text, verses 13 through 15, but Pastor Danny covered that a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were in Matthew 18, 1 and following. So, talking about children and so forth. So we're not missing anything that was included in the message that we had a few weeks ago. And so today we find ourselves here in this uh, text beginning in verse 16. And this is an amazing story. It's a familiar story. It's in all the Gospels except for John. All the synoptic Gospels include this story uh, where this man comes up and presents himself to Jesus and has a question. And Jesus is going to filter these questions and talk to him. And And he's going to also talk to his disciples, and there's a lot, there's rich teaching in this text about salvation, what it really means to be saved. And as I was thinking and preparing all week for this message, I was thinking, wow, Lord, this is so important for for churches like ours, uh, for, for wherever God's people gather to be really crystal clear on what salvation is about. And believe it or not, I believe that some people are going to read this text today and still not get it. You know, um, this is actually going to confront an issue that is so prevalent in our world about how a person gets to heaven, and there's still going to be people who are going to miss it. So listen carefully this morning to something that I think is unmistakably profound in terms of what it really means to be saved. If that's interesting to you or important to you, then I hope you'll latch on. So beginning in verse 16, let's read it and follow along. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first." Amen. All right. God's Word is so powerful. I want to talk about this little account today. You notice some questions in the text? A lot of questions floating around. I'm going to build the sermon around three primary questions that I think deserve our close attention. 
If you're taking notes, you want to be kind of listening for the tension of these questions. And basically what these questions are going to do is they're going to help us basically clear up a a common misunderstanding. They're going to highlight a truly miraculous thing, and they're going to incentivize sacrificial service. Those are the three things we're going to weave through the sermon today. If you're taking notes, let's first look at this uh, overturning or revealing a common a common misunderstanding, verse 16. What's the question? Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Let's talk about this guy for just a minute. We don't really know much about him, really. We don't really know his background or his personal story. We don't even know his name. He just shows up one day as Jesus is going to Jerusalem and asks him this question. What must I do? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, what we do know about this guy is he had three things that a lot of us wish we had. He had youth, he was young, he had influence, he was a leader. Luke's gospel tells us that he was a ruler in the synagogue. And he was also, not only was he young and influential, but he was also uh, very wealthy. He had much wealth. Matthew says he, he he had great wealth. I'm sure if the television series The Bachelor was on in those days, this guy would have been a prime candidate to be on that show if he was not married. When you look at a guy like this, you think, wow, I mean, from from society's standard, this guy had it all. He had everything. He had youth, he had money, and he had influence. But the other thing you see about this young man, according to his question, is that he was spiritually blind. He was blind as a bat. He really didn't understand the nature of salvation or what it really meant to have eternal life. And this is where a lot of people are in our society too. They look like they've got everything, but in the final analysis, they really have nothing. Because without Jesus, I mean, here, this is a big you know, proposition to make, but without Jesus, what do you really have? I mean, yeah, nothing. I mean, you, you can have wealth, you can have your youth, you can have influence in society, but without Jesus, what is really, you know, Jesus said, what would it profit a person to gain the whole world but forfeit his own soul? The most important thing in our lives And what bears down on all of us today is to ask our own lives the question of whether or not we have eternal life. So the question reveals one of the most common misconceptions. This man asks Jesus and reveals this common misconception. What is it? Here's the common misconception, if you haven't got it already, that eternal life is a reward for doing something good. This is so prevalent. This is everywhere. Most people in the world believe this, that if we're just good enough... Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. But you know, the, rea- the reality of that is quite the opposite. That hell will be filled with people with good intentions and heaven is going to be filled with people who were absolutely unrighteous and wicked to the core and knew it. Because until you can admit your unrighteousness, you can't have access to the kingdom of God. I mean, that's where it all starts. We're going to see this in the text this morning. So, this common misconception, I mean, if you don't believe that, I mean, everywhere I go, uh, here's, here's just a little opportunity. The next time you're at a funeral, listen carefully, and you will hear probably something that goes along the lines of this person who was deceased is in a better place, and the reason they're in a better place is because they did something good or their lives were good. We consider them good. And that's really where most people come across. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, 
What's most often neglected in this text is actually the key to understanding what Jesus is doing here. Okay, so lock in here for a second what's going on. Did you notice that when Jesus goes to answer this guy, his question, he doesn't seem to answer him uh, the right way. I mean, this guy says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life or to get eternal life? And Jesus redirects. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? Pause. There's only one who is good. I mean, if somebody asked me that question, Pastor Larry, what one thing do I need, what one good thing do I need to do to get eternal life? I would say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's nothing that you do. It's, it's, it's simply believing upon the name of Jesus and following him with your life. It's repenting of your sin. I mean, I would, I would not address this guy in any other way but to say, it's not something you do. It's who you trust in. It's, it's your faith in the one who came and died for you. And you think if someone could have done that better than anybody, it would have been Jesus. But Jesus, does, he redirects. Why does he redirect this guy? Because he knows that this guy, this young man, is looking at the word good or the concept of good uh, in a relative way. He's considering good in the spectrum of, you know, comparison. And Jesus is going to immediately show him that when you talk about good, you have to start with the absolute of what really is good. And the only one who is good is God. Comparatively speaking, no one is good. Let's just think about how we use the word good. We use good lots of ways. A few years ago, I bought a car. It was such a good deal. I mean, it had low mileage. It was the, the body was perfect. The interior was perfect. I was bragging to all my friends about this good deal that I got. Then I took it to the dealership to have a tune-up, and I got the sad news that the engine needed to be replaced. Good deal? No, not a good deal. So suddenly the word good didn't mean a whole lot to me. I used to love McDonald's hamburgers because they were such good hamburgers. Then I met In-N-Out and my life was changed. There's no comparison to me. Now, what I say, well, I'm just being a little silly here, but the point is we use good in all kinds of direction. You know, I could ask myself, am I a good pastor? Um, am I a good preacher? Well, you know, okay, I've been reading guys like John Knox and Jonathan Edwards and D.L. Moody and different pastors in the past who are just amazing guys. I think, man, you know, comparatively speaking, I don't, I don't do anything compared to these guys. So if you compare yourself or you look, it doesn't take long. You can say something is good, but then you'll find something comparatively better or comparatively worse. And Jesus stops this young guy in his tracks because Jesus knows that the guy's problem is that he doesn't understand the real, the real under, he doesn't have a good understanding of what goodness really is. And he's using it in a relative way. So Jesus starts with the nature of God. And he says, according to the nature of God, only God is good, so we are godless. And in that sense, we are goodless, too. And then, I don't know if there's a pause in verse 17, if Jesus stopped when he said there's only one who is good and then just sort of like waited, like, do you get this? And then he continu continues. All right, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. So now Jesus is going to establish goodness not only according to the nature of God, but watch this, according to the law of God. And he begins through the simple reiteration of some of the Ten Commandments. He says, 
do not mur- uh, well, he says, obey the commandments. And this young man says, which ones? Let's be specific. All right, Jesus says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting about this, I think Jesus is simply uh, giving this guy a layup to realize that if he hasn't caught the fact that in comparison to God, he doesn't have much goodness and he has no chance of being good enough, I mean, what good thing could I do to inherit eternal life? If God alone is good, what, how could I ever live in any way that would compare to God? All right, so, so let's start over. Let's reframe it with the law of God. Am I good compared to the law of God? Okay, Jesus says don't murder, don't lie, don't you know, commit adultery, uh, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. And look at his response, verse 20. All these things I have kept. <laughs> I... You know, we, we fail to see sort of the subtle pride that is in this young man's heart. Now, sur- surely as a leader in the synagogue, he probably followed the company line that if you follow all these meticulous laws that we put together, you can actually say you're keeping the law of God. But you remember when we studied earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus, when he approaches the Pharisees and their interpretation of the law, he says, hey, be careful because you know it says you should not kill in the, in the law of God, but I say to you, if you are angry at your brother, it's the same as murder. So Jesus is basically giving this young man an opportunity to say, look, when I look at the law of God, okay, I get it. There's no way I could ever be good enough. But how does he respond? I've kept all these laws. I only wonder if his parents would have been listening if they said, oh, hey, wait a minute. You always obeyed us? No way. So Jesus is wanting to bring this young man to his senses. But the young man shows Jesus that he clearly didn't understand what good really meant. Listen, there's a lot of people that we would call good people. I get it. But if you really want to be accurate if you really want to understand what the Bible talks about, the nature of man, we would have to agree that even though we use the word good to describe certain people, the final analysis is that really compared to God and his law, none of us are good. In fact, that's really the secret to understand. It's not even a secret. It's all through the Bible. Uh, Our depravity outside of what God does in our lives in his free gift of grace We are depraved. That means we always choose away from God. We always go in a direction. God says go right, we go left. That's our nature. We are born to do that. We don't have to teach our children to be dishonest or to lie or to cheat or to hate. or It just comes naturally. Have you noticed that? And what happens in our world is all of this stuff is just natural to people. All the stuff we see in the news, this is natural to depraved human nature. And we don't understand it. In the book of Psalms, uh, and Paul writes about this in Romans 3. You can turn to Romans 3 if you want to, if you can go quickly there. But uh, let me quote out of Romans 3 from the Old Testament, uh, uh, Psalm 14, where the writer says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even how many? Not even one. Now, I, I know this, this just flies in the face of, of modern psychology that says we're all born good and it's society that corrupts us. 
You know, we're innately good people, but the Bible says, no, 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 no. We have a nature problem. We have a sin nature that is corrupt to the core. And that doesn't mean we can't make better choices than other choices. And I'm not trying to throw, you know, dispersion on people that really try to do good with their lives. I'm just saying if you want to get really technical with it, the Bible describes humanity as one big batch of, of, of wicked, sinful people that apart from the grace of God, we would be lost forever and ever and deservingly so. Nobody stand before God and say, but God, I, I did so many good things. Compared to his nature, compared to his law, eh, we all fail. God knows this, and he doesn't rub our noses in it. He just says, this is our condition. This is why Jesus came. And so Paul continues in that passage, if you're in Romans 3, and look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of what? Sin. What is Jesus giving this young man an opportunity to do? To recognize his sin, to become conscious of his sin. Jesus gave him two opportunities. There's only one who's good, and that's God. Let's talk about the law of God. Don't do this, don't do that. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. How did you come up there? Well, I've kept them all. Eh, actually wrong. Just show consciousness, be conscious of your sin, and this young man just fails on every side. And that's because apart from God's grace of opening our eyes, we are destined to just continue to go the other way. Now, look at verse 22, back to Matthew 19, when the young man hears all of what's going on here, and that there's just, remember he came to Jesus, what's the one thing? What's the silver bullet? What's the thing I can do that I can believe that I'm going to get eternal life? What is that one thing? And Jesus finally just comes out to say, all right, here it is. Uh, Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. Now, If you're taking notes, here's what I want you to see. Eternal life is entered into through repentance and faith. It's not as a result of what you do, whether good or bad. It's not based on what you do. It's not how good you are. I said at the top of this sermon, there's going to be people leaving today out of this service who will still live their lives under the premise that I've just got to be good enough and God will accept me. It's such a deep trough of of, uh, default in our hearts that even when we hear it in the Word of God, even when we hear it being preached, we still don't get it. And until God can open our eyes and reveal to us that we are sinners in need of grace, that none of our works count, none of it is going to be brought into a place where Jesus says, okay, you made the cut, good job. We're all sinners and separated from God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so what happens to this guy? He has this crisis moment, verse 22, and he goes away sad. In this sense, all of what he had, his youthfulness, his leadership, and even his wealth were actually a means to his sadness because he couldn't give up what he loved more than Jesus. See, he came asking for something that he could do that would be okay as long as he could keep all this other stuff intact. There's a lot of people in the Christian church today that want to add Jesus into their already idolatrous lives. I know this is hard teaching, but it's true. We tend to sort of like want the add-on. We want our lives the way we want it, and then we want Jesus to come along and 
Praise God. Listen, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is I die to myself. The, the idols have to go down. And I, that's called repentance, by the way. The idols coming down in our lives. That's repentance. And when you start with repentance, you continue in repentance. Because idols are going to keep showing up. Have you noticed that? Still grabbing at our lives. Still asking us for attention. Still wanting us to worship. Still, And I'm not talking about statutes. Statues and, and little figurines around your house. I'm talking about real stuff like relationships and, and pleasure and money and status and prestige and, and looks and age and all of these things that we covet and we go after with our lives. And Jesus said, here's what you need. You need to repent of your life of idolatry and you need to follow me. And at that, the young man went away sad. You know, I think it's a good thing when people hear the, the real message of the gospel and understand it clearly enough to say, uh, no. That's good. Maybe there's a little too much confusion in the church today where everybody thinks that, you know, you can just live whatever way you want and you can still have Jesus because the whole point of the gospel is Jesus just giving you what you want. That's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. So, so this first thing in this text is clearing up a common misunderstanding. Did you get it? Okay, some of you got it. All right. Let's move to the second thing that this text does, and that it highlights something truly miraculous. It highlights something truly miraculous. So Jesus moves into a little teaching time with the disciples. He sees this young man walk away. Jesus turns and tells his disciples how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, that should, all, that should stop all of us in our tracks because comparatively speaking to everyone else in the world, we are filthy rich. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I could go into a long little diatribe about all the stuff that we have that we take for granted. You wouldn't even consider how rich you are except for 90% of the world doesn't have it. Like clean water at the tap. Like places to keep your food cold. And having food. And I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, now some have looked at what Jesus said here and they think, oh, okay, what Jesus, I mean, look at this. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Anybody seen a camel ever go to the eye of a needle? That's called hyperbole in the Greek language. Jesus used hyperbole a lot. It's an exaggeration for the point of truth. And there couldn't be any greater exaggeration than to see a camel go through the eye of a needle. And Jesus said, it's easier for that to happen than for a rich person to go to heaven. Uh-oh. That means that idolatry is really strong. And by the way, some people have looked at that and they, they take what Jesus is saying here and they, they put this in a general sense that this is what Jesus calls for all followers to do. Take a vow of poverty, sell everything you have, give to the poor and follow Jesus. And, you know, there are great, St. Francis of Assisi followed that idea. There are a lot of great uh, people, people that really lived out their faith in conviction that that's it. You just, you, you know, you empty your bank accounts. I'm going to suggest to you that while that might be a noble thing to do. That's not the teaching of this text. Jesus is narrowing in. He's zeroing in on the idol of this young man's life. He knows, just like he knows the idol of your life and my life. I mean, if this guy was, 
all, if his idol was politics, Jesus might have said to his disciples uh, how difficult it is for a politician to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> or if, if this young man's you know, idol was humanism or you know, a self-made life, he could have said how difficult it is for a humanist or secularist to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean... Or if, if it was pleasure, how difficult it is for the, a hedonist to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is just simply pointing out the apex of where the idol connected with his call on this young man's life. And he does the same in our lives. Whatever it is that's keeping us from walking with Christ in obedience and submission, that's the idol that needs to come down. And it might be wealth, but it might be power. It might be your looks, or it might be your friends, or it might be your bank account, or I don't know what it is. But Jesus, whatever it is, Jesus would say to you, it's got to come down. The idol has to come down. And you've got to follow me. If you want me, that's, that's the way it works. If you want eternal life, it's not by doing good. It's by repentance and faith. So if you're taking notes, here's, here's what's truly miraculous. What's miraculous is that our salvation is only made possible by God himself. And notice the, the disciples, you know, they, they can't believe this. And Jesus says, they say, this is impossible. And Jesus said, you're right, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is a picture of the impossibility of saving ourselves. And Jesus saying, you're right. It's a total impossibility to get eternal life on your own. Quit trying. But with God, all things are possible. Like the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we know this verse, it is by grace we have been saved. And that, through faith, that not, this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not, that, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's truly miraculous that any of us are saved because none of us deserve it and none of us did anything to get it. That's amazing. That's miraculous. Uh, a friend was telling me recently, someone in our church, um, uh, cancer, uh, going to the doctor, and this woman one day in her doctor's office, the doctor says to her, do you mind, she kind of stops, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Well, of course. And he says, are you by chance a Christian? Now, she is a Christian. And of course, the question was a beautiful entree to kind of begin to share with this man, but she, she asked, why do you ask? And he said, well, he said, uh, because... Um, and, and she had said, yes, I am. Why do you ask? He, he said, because it seems like people like you face cancer different somehow. Like I see people all the time and, and I see this kind of person that comes in and has this overwhelming something, peace, comfort, purpose, hope. And he goes on to describe sort of these uh, intangibles about people that he kind of wondered. And so he couldn't help but to ask her, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I am. And she got to thinking about it for a moment. She says, you know, his name was John. His first name was John. She said, did you know that there's a book in the Bible with your name on it? <laughs> he said, no, I didn't know that. She said, there's, there's a gospel. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And she pulls out of her purse this little gospel of John. She says, I would love to give this to you and ask you to read it because inside this book you'll discover how you can have a relationship with Jesus. Amen. He said thanks. He took it. 
She came back about a month later. She's been going through chemo, radiation, all this stuff. So now she goes back. And she's sitting in his office again. And, she, and the, this is how it opens up. He says, you remember the book you gave me? Oh, of course I remember. I've been praying for you. She, he said, I read it probably a dozen times. He says, and about, I don't know, the fifth or sixth time I, I saw my need and I've become a Christian. And I've given my life to Jesus. And then well, listen to this. He said, this is a miracle. He said, and my whole family have read it and they've all become Christians too. Now, a couple things, I mean, they're a little, don't miss this. First of all, the beauty of someone's testimony and how we react and respond to the things that happen in our lives. Huge billboard for people who are wondering, people that God is awakening to their need for Christ. So don't ever forget that. God is using your story, wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, he'll use your story. And then the power of the Word of God. This little, you know, I got so excited hearing that story, I went out and I got myself some Gospels of John. <laughs> and you know, I've had little opportunities here and there. It's just so cool, you know. First I ask if their name is John. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the Word of God. Thank God for our, I'm looking down here at Guillermo. Thank God for, and Lisa, this beautiful ministry that they have with many of our people, many of us who are in the seed planters ministry. Go out on Sundays after church, a couple Sundays a month when they can, and they just go to parks and places and hand scriptures to people. Now that's great. That's kind of like shotgun. You know, it's, you know, it's just randomized, but beautiful, beautiful. Why? Because we believe the Word of God is so powerful, and our testimony is so powerful that when people hear it, the, a seed is planted, and God's going to nurture that seed. And, and if, if you, how many of us, let's just, okay, a little simple I'm going to do a little experiment here. How many of us here today, you've, you've come to the place by God's grace of repenting of the idols of your life. Doesn't mean you're perfect. There's idols always coming up. We continue to repent. We, start, we started with repentance and faith in Jesus. We're following Jesus. We came to that point in our lives where we repented and we placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I just want you to raise your hand just boldly upright. Okay, no, that's okay. That's a pretty safe question, by the way, to ask in a church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> You know, but there's some of us that couldn't raise our hands just yet, and that's okay, great, we're so glad you're here, but you're sitting around miracles. Anybody that raised their hand, that's a miracle of God. It's not because they figured it out, not because they're smarter than you or anything else. We've not got anything more than anything in the world. Just God has been so gracious to reveal to us our need for Jesus. And ever, we go out of here in a minute, and we're going to be walking testimonies and walking miracles to the people in our lives. You know, in just a few weeks, we're going to open our doors. We're going to be doing this summer musical. You know, it's just kind of a family-friendly, let's see, let's just do some fishing, kind of. And so, Beauty and the Beast, Disney. You know, we're, we, we used to do these Broadway things and just kind of a community outreach. We love the arts, and it's fun. It's a great experience. But at the end of the Beauty and the Beast, we're going to bring a timely, sensitive, appropriate little wrap-up that will introduce people to Jesus. Think about the metaphor, Beauty and Beast. Can you figure out who we're talking about? And there's going to be seeds planted in those little wrap-ups. And some people are going to go out and pick up something at the table that might describe something about what they're looking for in their lives or what they know that they need in their life. Like the young man, what do I still lack? I've tried everything, I don't know. And Jesus is going to reveal himself to people. You know, here, here at Three Crosses, we are, we are, we, we are gospel entranced. We believe that the gospel is the answer to the world. 
we believe that we have what only God can give. And we are so grateful that he would look upon us, unworthy sinners as we are, and extend to us his unlimited grace through his son Jesus Christ. And by repentance and faith, we can enter into a new life with him. I mean, what, how much more miraculous can it be? This text reveals to us a common misunderstanding. It, it highlights something truly miraculous. And lastly, our time is almost gone, but check this out. It incentivizes sacrificial ministry. Here's another question that comes up in the text. And I love Peter's honesty here. Don't you, verse 27? We left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? <laughs> I mean, Peter, come on, Peter. I think Peter is swept up in the drama of what had just unfolded and he couldn't restrain himself. And suddenly realizing that he and the others had indeed surrendered everything to follow Jesus. If you're taking notes, here's what I want you to see in this question and what Jesus says, that all followers of Jesus are promised a future reward of incomprehensible worth. I mean, first he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, you guys, you 12 are going to actually judge the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, that's a future date that's still coming in history. And then he says, and all of you, anyone that's left houses, mothers, fathers, by the way, that really shows the strictness of the gospel message, doesn't it? That there is such a, a turning away from and turning toward Christ that in some cases it does even mean leaving family or being good with family leaving us. And Jesus said, look at this. I, I'm not a, uh, a mathematician, but check this out. We'll receive, anyone who leaves all this, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I, I'm not all that smart, but I know a hundred times is a great return of, in, of investment. I mean, Jesus says, are you kidding me? In another place in Scripture, I has, Isaiah 64, and also in the book of Corinthians, I has not seen nor ear has heard the great things in store for those who love me. Or the mind has comprehended. I mean, so if you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ today and you're feeling a little puny in your life or you're a little fatigued or you feel like, ah, you know, is it worth it? Listen to what Jesus says here. This is the incentive for sacrificial service. He's not saying burn out. He's just saying look up. A day is coming. Your reward draweth nigh. And all through the scripture, this beautiful picture of Christ's return and the reward of eternal life and more. Our focus isn't on the reward, it's on Christ. Won't we be just joyous and excited that we'll be in the presence of the one who gave us his life? But this is why, and this is very, this is very relevant to what's going on in our world today. This is why the Christian has hope. Because our hope is not, our present behavior is not determined by present realities. Our present behavior is determined by a future reality. Amen? So I can love people that are different than me, who believe different than me, who are different cultures than me, and even hate me. I can do all that I can to show love to them, to get as close as I can to them, that by chance the Spirit of the living God would 
use that to drop a seed of the gospel in their hearts. That's why we are messengers of reconciliation. That's why we are messengers of peace. Not because we've got it all together, but that we know the one who does. Who can allow us to love like only he can love. And forgive like only he forgives. And does not our world need that? Well, we don't know if this young man ever came back around. The Bible doesn't say. I'd like to believe he went home and thought about it and said, what am I doing? The Spirit of God break loose on his life and repent of the idols and come and follow Jesus. I don't know, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. And I love that sometimes in the Scripture, the tension just sits there. Because for some of us, that's our story today. All right.